0: gospel of Mark, we find ourselves just a few days away from the crucifixion of Christ. He's still ministering in the temple. This is on Tuesday of the Holy Week. We've studied Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday takes up a number of chapters. And usually when we go through Holy Week or Passion Week uh, in the early spring, I don't feel like we often give a lot of weight to Tuesday. I'm not sure if you have thought about this, but as I'm traveling through and studying and I'm going, wow, there is a lot that happened on Tuesday and it seems like it doesn't get quite the emphasis, but this is something that I'm learning. One of the things that we have focused on in our study is the religious leaders are just furious about the message and the methods and the influence of Jesus. And last week I talked to you about how it's not just their flesh, it's not just that they're naturally jealous, but there is a spiritual dimension to their fury. There is something about the spiritual realm that is inciting them in their anger and in their desire to shut Jesus down. And we can understand that, but we don't often think about the spiritual realm and how that is influencing us or others in an antichrist agenda, but that is certainly happening. So I tried to point that out and convince you as much as I could. I'm not sure if I did, but I tried. And so we're seeing something happen here with the religious leaders. As they come around Jesus in the final week of his life, they are launching a series of attacks against him using questions of a divisive nature that are both theological and even political in their day. And so what we're going to see today is the passage points to a political issue, or it would seem, But what we'll find is that it's actually about a whole lot more than that. We're going to see that today in Mark chapter 12. I'll start, of course, in verse 13. And here's what the Bible says. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, "'Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth.'" Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought him one. He said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And look what it says many, many times, they were amazed at him and his teaching amen this is the word of the lord over the last uh, few weeks maybe a couple months really i've been contemplating wanting to come to you and just talk about some practical things concerning uh, the political arena politics voting and these these kinds of responsibilities that we have as american citizens what does that mean for us and it just so happens that in our study of the gospel of mark that this passage came up and i just want to remind you i am not in my view, smart enough to make all of this work. I swear, I make a plan and it doesn't come together. I'm not the A-team, you know what I'm saying? Like, it does not come together. But it's amazing to me how November 8th is on Tuesday and it is our midterm election, in case you weren't aware. Bridget and I, of course, already voted. And so I wanted to talk about this. And here's this passage. But as you would imagine, this passage does not solve every political question Uh, that we would have. And I don't plan to try to do any of that today. But I do think the passage helps us to grasp the mind of Christ whenever it is that we might find ourselves in a polarizing political tension. And that's what I hope to highlight today. And there's some practical thoughts. What I want to do is just walk through the text as faithfully as I can. And then after that, I'm going to bring to you seven points that I think could be helpful in guidance as it pertains to politics and, and voting. And uh, once again, I don't say that to make you think I'm gonna say all the stuff you might want me to say or hope I would say or maybe hope I wouldn't say, uh, but I'm just gonna say some things that I think are helpful for me, amen? amen. Uh, all, all right. All right. The first thing I see here in the text is what I'm calling the polarizing question. And here's how I would summarize the question they're they're presenting to Jesus. What side are you on? Trying to catch him. What side are you on? Verse 13, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him. And they wanted to do that in a statement. And so they said to him, teacher, we know that, can I say this the way I feel it in my heart? Teacher, we know that you are truthful and you defer to no one. For you are not partial to any, but you teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? This is the question. Did did, did that, was that all right? Okay, last night was no good. I had everybody say, no, it's not good. So, all right, you guys are great. Here's the first thing I want to point out in this text. Number one, the Pharisees and the Herodians conspired together. We see that in verse 13. They were sent to Jesus. This collaboration of these two groups of people is almost miraculous, okay? This is unbelievable, actually, because the Pharisees were leaders of the synagogue. They were teachers of the law. They were ultra-separatists. We've talked a lot about the Pharisees in the Gospel of Mark. The Herodians, however, were a group loyal to Herod, Herod was an Edomite. He was a pseudo-Jewish king. He had a relationship, a good relationship, with the Roman government. They liked him very much. They gave him a lot of freedom, and there was a whole group of people surrounded around Herod, and we call them the Herodians. These two groups did not like love or hang out together. The Pharisees were the conservatives, the Herodians were the liberals. The Pharisees hated Jesus because he was messing with their religious agenda. The Herodians opposed him because he was threatening their political advantage. And Jesus miraculously brought the conservatives and the liberals together for one single purpose, which was to destroy him. I'll just leave that where it is. The second point I see from the text is they employed the strategy of flattery. Before they ask their question, they're trying to butter them up, which is always a terrible idea when you're thinking it's Jesus, but they try nonetheless. And remember, flattery is this. It's to tell someone what you think that they want to hear. Flattery is also affirming what you think somebody thinks about themselves it gets you into their good graces or at least that's the mindset behind it so here are the three things that they say to Jesus to try to butter him up in order to get where they're going the first is they call him a teacher this would be the word rabbi they're saying hey this is a this is a title of respect we see you as a teacher we see you as a good teacher What do you say about this? They're affirming this role in front of not only Jesus, but all the other people. This is how we see you. The first thing is they affirm that he is truthful. They're like, you are upright and you're reliable and you're full of integrity. We all know that about you. And and then the third thing they basically say is you're impartial. You defer to no one. It's another way of saying, you will not just say what the people want to hear. You will speak the truth. Now, the Pharisees and the Herodians wouldn't speak the truth, but they're recognizing or at least trying to flatter Jesus by saying, you're, you're not a person that will say just what people want to hear, even though they, they were those kind of people. Now, even though they're insincere and sarcastic about this, they're still speaking the truth. Jesus was a teacher and more than a teacher. Jesus was truthful and Jesus was impartial. So they are speaking the the truth. But just a quick reminder as we're looking at flattery here. The Bible does not have good things to say about flattery. So I'll just park it by saying, don't do it. But that's not enough. So let's see what the Bible says. Proverbs 26 and verse 28. A lying tongue hates those it hurts and a flattering mouth works ruin. Look at Proverbs 29 and 5, which totally applies in this context. A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his own steps. Is that not what we just read? They are spreading a net for their own steps. But here's the third part of this portion of, of the scripture. They asked a political question to trap Jesus. The question was this, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or not pay? The question was polarizing because it carried deep theological and political significance. See, during this time, the Jews were demanded to pay three different taxes to Rome. The first one was called a ground tax. A ground tax consisted of one-tenth of all their grain and one-fifth of all their wine and fruit. They did this every single year. This is what they were required to pay. The second tax was an income tax. This amounted to 1% of the total family income. This, of course, was every year as well. The third tax was a poll tax, and that's what's in question in this text. Every person between the ages of 14 and 65 paid one denarius directly to Caesar every single year for the privilege of existing. So there's a reason why they disdained this tax more than anything else. Heavy taxation in the first century partly made them feel not only oppressed, but like it was slavery. This is the feeling that the Jewish people had. And so one of their desires for the Messiah coming was that when the Messiah comes, he will lift this oppression. And part of that was the heavy taxation that they experienced. So you can imagine when these people asked Jesus about the tax, they did think that they were trapping him because even though you couldn't speak out loud about the taxation, because you know. Rome would do to people if you started to say things that tend towards um, somehow coming against the state of Rome or Caesar himself. That would not be a good day for you. So it was this internal tension that all of the Jewish people carried. They had a hatred towards Rome, towards Caesar, and towards taxation. Now, Caesar Augustus, Tiberius's father, Caesar Tiberius, he was the Roman emperor at the time, but his father was Augustus, and he was the one that implemented this poll tax in 6 AD. Here's another part of that. He claimed that he was God. And so the tension for the Jew was this question. Why should we pay this tax directly to Caesar knowing that he's a blasphemer? See, they carried this tension that because he claims he is God, are we participating in something of idolatry by paying this tax? That was the tension that they had as they were demanded to to do this. Now, of course, they, they did it. The ones that stopped doing it were later known as what we call the zealots. And so they wanted to oppose Rome by any means necessary. So if Jesus said, pay the tax most people say he'd probably lose at least 50% of his influence. Oh, and they wanted that. But if Jesus said, don't pay the tax, we learn from Luke chapter 20 and verse 20, when Jesus is in front of Pontius Pilate, it is stated that there were spies in the crowd throughout the last week of Jesus's life. They were always there. So if he said, don't pay the tax, that would be looked at as a threat potentially moving towards insurrection because he was someone that had influence. And so the spies are always looking for those people and they were paying close attention to Jesus. The Herodians and the Pharisees knew it. Get him to say something that will cause him to be arrested and we don't even have to do the dirty work because we can't uh, execute him anyways. You know what this situation reminded me of when I was studying this passage was John chapter 8. It doesn't have a political tinge to it per se, but it certainly did have a theological one. Now in John chapter eight, it says that the the Jewish leaders brought to Jesus a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Do you remember that passage? And they bring that woman before Jesus and they say she was caught in the act of adultery. The law says that we should stone her. What do you say? And that was a bad day for them, wasn't it? And Jesus does this wonderful thing. I believe it's a word of wisdom. I believe it's a word of wisdom. He starts to write in the ground. Now we all have opinions on what he wrote. I have my opinions, okay? But we're not talking about John 8 today. He starts to write in the ground. Everybody sees it. We don't know what it says. But then he says, him who is without sin cast the first stone and the older people left first (laughs) because they were well acquainted with their sin over many years And the younger people sort of stood there a little longer and then they went, yeah, all right, I'm gonna follow the older people. (laughs) Because they figured it out, you know, that that if they're going, I need to go. Jesus had a word of wisdom. They tried to catch him. Here's what they're doing here. They tried to make Jesus choose a side, but friends, it doesn't work. They thought they had him, but they were wrong as usual. So here's what goes on. Jesus gives a clarifying answer. And I wanna summarize it. This is what I believe he's saying. I am on God's side. I'm not on your side. I'm not on this side. I'm not on that side. I am on God's side. Look at the text. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought one. And he said, by the way, Jesus didn't have a denarius. He didn't have any money. I just want you to think about that for a second. There are some people that think Jesus was really rich. Okay, I'm going to move on. Anyways, (laughs) he said, bring me a denarius because apparently he didn't have one that's just a thought for you. They brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, we'll render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. And they were amazed. The first thing I see here is Jesus pointed out their hypocrisy. He says out loud to the crowd, why are you testing me? I mean, that's the way I would say it. sort of just exhausted by this overwhelming amount of coming at him. And he just continues to have to show them that they're wrong. But why are you testing me? This word testing is the same word that's used in Mark chapter one and verse 13, where it says Satan tested Jesus. You remember last week I was trying to make a correlation between the spiritual and the natural. Sometimes we just think naturally, but there is a spiritual dimension that was there. Jesus says to Satan, or about Satan in Mark 1.13, Satan tested Jesus. Same word here is used. Why are you testing me? It says the same thing about Satan. In fact, you know the scripture that I forgot to tell you last week? No, you don't. I'm going to tell you. John chapter 8 and verse 44 When Jesus is addressed, unless you think that there wasn't spiritual behind the religious leaders that came to Jesus, do you remember when Jesus said to them, you are like your father, the devil? I was like, when I went home, I went, the only verse that I missed was the most important verse. (laughs) Some preacher I am. There's a correlation. I hope you see it. He is saying your line of questioning is insincere and your goal to further your evil agenda is is clear. You know what I think he's saying. Why are you testing me? He's looking at him saying, "I see you." Everybody is transparent before the eyes of Jesus. I see what you're trying to do, and it's not going to work. I just love Jesus. Oh man, I love Jesus. I love the Bible too. It just stop for a minute and look at what he's saying. Picture the crowd. It's amazing. The second thing, political perspectives will always test our heart. I want to make an adjustment. I would say we will usually test our heart. Not always, that, that, that was a miss there on my part. Political perspectives will usually test our heart. Jesus asked for a denarius, which was a small silver coin. And it was, by the way, the same amount for the yearly poll tax. So wouldn't you know, that's why he asked for it. Bring me what we have to give for a poll tax. And so he holds the coin. Now, this has George Washington on it, but um, so I don't have an authentic denarius. Uh, The one I saw on eBay was $3,000. So just picture this as a denarius, all right? He held the coin and he said, whose inscription is on this coin? They said Caesar's. I wanted to show you a picture of this. Now it's interesting because ancient minting processes were not consistent. So it looks like uh, when you look at the various pictures, although the denarius was around for a long time, when you just look at the one for Caesar Tiberius, it looks like he went up and down in his weight many times because their minting process is not uh, was not consistent. Anyways, Uh, so one, he's got like a huge neck, you know, like he was working out a lot. And then the other one, he's got kind of a Thin one with an Adam's apple, but uh, anyhow, just if you do a little research, it's kind of funny. This is the front of the coin. That is a picture of Caesar Tiberius, and here's what it says Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. That's what it says on the front. You can see their conundrum. With the coin, you can see their conundrum with the poll tax. Now, this is the back of the coin, and people don't agree on what this is a picture of. But most people believe that this is Livia, which would be Caesar Tiberius's mom and Augustus's wife. And in Greek, it says high priest. So this is uh, Caesar Augustus, the divine Augustus, and and then this is high priest. So that's what their coin says. And so when Jesus is saying to them, render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's and God's what to God's, and they marveled. They marveled because in one illustration, Jesus uncovered their hearts. That's all that it took. He just showed them the coin that they're fighting over. They're getting upset about this. He's like, this is the coin? This is what you guys are upset about? I just want you to pick. This is what you're upset about. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Who cares? Give him all of the money. We don't care, but give to God what is God's. He turns it around. It's assumed that these people are doing the right thing, saying the right thing, trying to get rid of Jesus. It's an assumption and within that political questioning, as often can be the case, the assumption is, is that we are on the righteous side and we are saying the righteous thing, and we are the ones that are literally perpetuating that which is right. But Jesus does not assume that when he looks at the human heart and he says, give it all to Caesar. Who cares? The question is, have you given everything of all that you are to God? Are you loyal to God? That's what Jesus is going after in all this. He's not dismissive of the role of government, but he's always kingdom oriented. I'm not on your side. I am on God's side. Yes, we are responsible to yield and work with leaders and government. And in our world, it's completely different. So I'll get to that here in a minute. But I just think it's interesting how Jesus makes no assumptions about those that are right and wrong, and he's questioning them. Do you you really have full loyalty to God? And that's my third point here. God demands and deserves the fullness of our heart loyalty. Coins are stamped with the image of people, but people are stamped with the image of God. We are responsible to many in this world, to our family, to our society, even in the political arena, to government. But we can only be loyal to one, and this is not assumed. Friends, this is not assumed. You and I can only be fully loyal to one. And if we are loyal to that one, if we are loyal to King Jesus, that will then become the filter by which we are righteously responsible to our family, to our society, to our workplace, and to our government. But if this is not right, this will never be right. It is not assumed. This is why repentance is a daily thing. This is why renewing our mind according to the word of God is a daily thing. It is not assumed. It is the active posture of the believer in Jesus Christ. Caesar may have a right to our taxes, but only God has a right to our worship. Caesar may have a right to our revenue, but only God has a right to our reverence and our trust And our hope and our faith and our prayer and our future must be fully and completely in Jesus Christ, 100%. This is what he's coming for every time. This is the tension that we experience all throughout our life. Psalm 146 and verse three says, put not your trust in princes, in a man in whom there is no salvation. Put it in Christ. He alone deserves it. Now, you say, well, Ben, thank you. For sharing that. But we have an ongoing conundrum, do we not? And we do in the 21st century. We do in 2022. How should Christians view and engage politically? Now, obviously from the text and from a biblical perspective, I'm convinced, and I believe you are, that our loyalty to God is first and it becomes the filter by which we become biblically responsible in all areas of our life. Our life is holistic. We are not to be compartmentalized. We are what we are. If we are a Christian, we are a Christian in every sphere of our, of our life. And we all know that Jesus is the answer to the moral dilemmas of our day, the political conundrums that we find ourselves in. We all believe, and if you don't, I want to convince you by just saying it today. Jesus is the answer, but that doesn't necessarily help us with all the questions that we have. So there are some guiding principles that help me as I consider political Engagement in our world today, and it's going to take a while to get to some of the most practical parts. But just follow me, if you will. It's important not to just give this or that answer, so I'm just going to go through it really uh, quickly. Amen. Number one, this is God's world. That's I was just looking for a real hearty. Okay. <laughs> Genesis chapter one tells us God is the creator. The Bible says He is the sovereign ruler. He is the righteous judge of heaven and earth. Regardless of who may be the king or the president of any nation of any time in history, God is always and forever on the throne. He has never left the throne. He is always in charge over all. Number two, God has delegated authority to people. While this certainly is God's world, scripture is clear that he has delegated a whole lot of things into our hands. Genesis one26 and 28 says he made us in his image according to his likeness. And then he said, I want you to... Be fruitful and multiply, which means have sex and children and uh, fill the earth and subdue the earth. I am putting you in charge. Well, we did not do a great job, but we do learn from this passage that from the beginning, we have been called by God to govern the earth in a way that aligns with his will. The third part is sin has clouded our judgment and our ability to govern righteously. Humans disobeyed God from the beginning, Genesis chapter three, and it has put within us a sinful disposition that turns inward instead of upward. And where it doesn't turn upward, we are not that helpful to the people in our world and we all experience this. So this disposition is responsible for bad stewardship, bad judgment, bad principles, and bad government and destruction that follows. So I'm not surprised by sinful people, systems, policies, government, because I know that we need Jesus. We need repentance and we need to turn to him. And when we turn to him, the Bible says we get a new heart. And friends, that's what we need. That's what our world truly needs. Sin has clouded our judgment and our ability to govern. Number four, the world system is not a construct of God's will or ways. Humans have built society for thousands of years based on the flesh, centered on self. History proves this. All history proves this. But in John chapter 2, and verse 15 through 17, John tells us that we are not to love the world nor the things in the world. Now, John chapter three says something kind of different. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So it seems incongruent. Don't love the world, but God loves the world. Well, the context dictates what he's talking about. God loves the people of the world, but the world system is what John says we cannot and should not love. This construct that usually is devised by unregenerate people. And therefore, it has principles in this world system that do not align with God. This is why Jesus said in John 17, for Christians, followers of Jesus, we are to be in the world, but we are not to be of the world, because we are of something else. We live by principles that are higher and transcendent, and no matter how good the government is, no matter how many righteous people we put into office, the reality is, is that this system is never fully conforming to that of the righteous reign of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying it can't be better. It should be, and I pray for it to be, and I vote for it to be. But the reality is, is that we put all of this into Christ, where he will make make all things good. Number five is God's government is the kingdom of God and Jesus is the king. The father sent the son to reclaim what we handed over to the enemy. Now here's a passage that we usually share in Christmas time. And I know you're anticipating Christmas, but there's things there that you've got to see. Isaiah chapter nine and verse six, for to us, a child is born To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be, talking about Jesus, everybody, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty Will accomplish this. Why is this important? Here's why. When Jesus came on the scene in his ministry in Mark chapter 1, what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God is so close you can touch it. It's at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Turn from not only your sin, but turn from your allegiance to any other Lord. This is why in the first century, for people to say Jesus is Lord was not only theological, but it was political because everybody had to say Caesar is Lord. And so when the Christians said Jesus is Lord, they were saying my allegiance is fully and completely in him. His word, his kingdom, his lordship is the filter for how we interact with everyone and everything, and it is not assumed. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15 says, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven which said, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our God, our Lord, and his Messiah, or his Christ. It's talking about a time where every kingdom, every country, every nation, every form of power is going to be handed over To the Lordship of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes, everything bows. Everyone bows to Him. And now He makes all things new. That's what it's talking about. And Christians are living in the tension of being in the world, but not being of the world, where we want to live righteously and rightly, and we want to be good stewards of society and everything that we're a part of. But there is this tension that all the apostles spoke about. Peter or Paul would say that we're literally living in a temporary tent. They would say that we are aliens, sojourners, we are passerbys, we are in this world, but we are longing for something greater that is coming. Jesus is coming. They live with this longing and this reality, it was their truth. They weren't looking just for better government, they were looking for Jesus. They were hoping for Jesus, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And it says that there will be something true about the, the way people think in the last days. They will say, oh, where is his coming? They will eat and drink and be merry and do whatever is right in their own eyes. And they will say to those that are longing for him, where is the? Where is his coming? This sense in which we've lost what the apostles lived with. That's what it's talking about. So here's what I'll say to you today. I give no party my allegiance. I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I'm a Christian. Now, you can disagree with me about that. That's fine. We can still both go to heaven. But I'm not looking to have my mind changed. I'm, it, it might be. I mean, I, I have to be open. I'm, it might be. You say, well, Ben, what does that mean? That's a great, that's a great question. Uh, if you want to know what I think about details, you can ask. And we can have coffee. And what did Isaiah say? You pay, I'll pray. What did he say? What did, he say? That's a good word. did you say? Did, nobody bought you coffee though, did they? <laughs> you know, it's like, whatever. So number six, we steward the mission of God as our top priority. Jesus gave us marching orders. He said, make disciples of of all nations, of all people groups, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teach them obedience to his words. This is what he said. This is our mission. This is our top priority, our top priority. Make disciples of all people groups. This is what I want you to do. You do that by preaching the gospel, baptizing people. Baptizing is death to the old life, And it's life in Christ. You come up and it's new life in Christ. You're a new creation. Death to what you were, new life in Christ. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I commanded you. He didn't say teach them to know, teach them to study. That might be helpful, but we need to know and study in order to do. Teach them to obey everything I can, com- be consumed with this call. And then he said, hey, and guess what? Lo, I am with you until the end of the age. Because <laughs> the disciples were probably feeling a burden. Like, how are we gonna, we're gonna die. We're gonna die. And they, and they did, they did actually. But Jesus said, I'm with you. I gave you an impossible task, but I'm with you. You're gonna feel fearful. You're gonna feel like you can't do it. You're gonna feel like you can't accomplish it. That's reality, but I'm with you until the end of the age. Don't think you're doing this alone. I'm, I'm with you. And This is not assumed, and statistics tell us that the majority of Christians are not passing on their faith to the next generation. That's our reality, friends. The reality is this. Our world may be getting darker in many sense, but the reality is, is, is this is that we have to pass on our faith to the next generation. In our homes, we have to do it in this church. We have to do it in our world. That's what changes the human heart. That's where we start. I'm not saying that other things don't matter. I'm saying this is our priority. And this, to me, to me, it's assumed that people are doing, I am not assuming that. I read the statistics even in America and the reality is it's not happening. And so, so we have to go back to this. I think sometimes people have made politics their priority for dealing with the moral dilemma of our day as their priority because this isn't the focus. Now that could be offensive to some people, but let, just hear me out. I think that it's easier to get upset about what's happening in our society at times. I'm not saying you won't get offended. I'm not saying you won't get upset. I'm not saying you don't disagree. I disagree with a ton of stuff right now in our world, okay? But I go direct my attention towards my children, Because if I lose my children in the middle of this, it doesn't matter how mad I am about that because I've not done what I'm responsible for. We've got children in our church, almost 200 kids. And the question that we have to answer is not just what is the world doing? What are we doing? What are we doing? That's the question that we, and this isn't guilt. I'm just asking the question, what are we going to do about the moral dilemma? I bet you if we had 1,200 on-fire Christians sent out into society, I bet you'd make a difference. I bet you it'd make a huge difference that we have joy and we have peace and we have good news and we're sharing those things. I bet you it would make a difference. And the Bible says it took 12 people to turn the world upside down. We've got to have that kind of faith again. We've got to have the kind of faith that our prayers matter and change things because they do. Where Jesus can take 12 people and lose one and take another one that we randomly never hear again about, Matthias. I feel bad for him. Like, you know, I want to do a message on Matthias. Some of you would resonate like, there's Matthias. He's only mentioned one time. That's me. I always feel that's how I feel, (laughs) you know. well, Ben, you're being dismissive. That's being dismissive. All the Is it or is it prioritizing? So you say, well, man, you're not answering our questions at all. You're right. <laughs> Number seven, though, see, you didn't, you didn't let me finish. It was like when I was a youth pastor. I had uh, all my senior pastor's kids in my youth group. That was bad. <laughs> you know? Because like in their spare time, they were reading the whole book of John, you know, just for fun. And so I would preach and I'd be on like point two and then they would correct me. But then I would say, thank you for your submission. Uh, But what you're sharing right now is point three. So if you'd let me get through my sermon, okay. Maybe we'll have a better sermon. I just, so pray for Ryan and Isaiah. What goes around comes around. Is that, is that, I don't think it's in the Bible, but it's still maybe true. I don't know. All right, number seven, we engage our world, including politics, as kingdom citizens. The kingdom of God being fully established is going to take a long time. You know that and so so do I. We don't know when Jesus is coming. We long for it. We're focusing on it. So some Christians say Christians should not be political. I disagree. I've never agreed with that. I've had people tell me that I agreed with that, which is funny, but I don't agree with that at all. We are holistic. That means whatever we are needs to be expressed in everything that we do. That's just, if you're a Christian, you are a Christian. It's not something you do. It's what you are. If you believe in the Bible, then it's going to leak out of everything that you say and everything that you do and every way that you vote. It has to. And if it doesn't, then that means that you and I need to renew our minds. This is the greatest voter guide that you will ever get. The problem is that we're not acquainted with it, as statistics tell us. This is not me saying this to you. Maybe you are. But I'm saying statistics do tell us that we're not Christians in America are not acquainted with this book. And so if the shoe fits, then let's renew our minds. Amen. Let's go back to the Bible And then say, well, how do we engage? So here's what I think. I think Christians should vote. I think Christians should be educated on these things. I think they should join boards. I think they should run for office. And I think we should do it as Jesus-loving, kingdom-of-God people. We shouldn't do it as angry people. I don't appreciate when Christians stand up angry in the public square. I don't think that's helpful because I think that as we come in an opposite spirit, it reveals Jesus and there's something different about that. If we suffer well, not for doing wrong, not for being angry, not for doing what the world does, but if we suffer well, but we're out in the light, then friends, all it does is show Jesus There's gotta be something different, not just about our words, but about our character. Not just what we say. Oh, I really agree with that person, but it's the way that we live. And I do not, I just do not appreciate it when people just make statements and that's what they think Being a Christian is in the public square. Friends, I understand we want to push back. I get that because many people feel like the darkness is impending upon us and I get that. And so there's this sense in which I want to push back and we're looking for public people, particularly pastors, to be that knight that in in shining armor to say what we're all thinking, but half the time when they say it, they're appealing to our anger and to our flesh. That's what they're doing. So you get on social media and you see them and they take stands, they make comments. A comment is a lot different than a conversation. Anybody, so I believe in traditional marriage. I believe one woman, one man in a covenant before God. I don't subscribe to gender ideology today. I'll I'll be honest with you, I have no problem. I lack no courage talking openly about this. But the reality is, is I see so many people just taking a stand and the question is, what are you doing to strengthen marriages? What are you doing to help suffering people? That's the work of the church, is discipleship. Anybody can make a comment, but the question is, who's having conversations? Who's discipling people? Who's helping people through the struggle? There are people in our church that have unwanted same-sex attraction, but they don't want to admit it because they feel like the minute that they do, that they'll be ostracized. So while I don't subscribe to same-sex marriage, And I know what the Bible teaches about a biblical sexual ethic. My desire is to teach it, explain it, and help people that are struggling in something that looks different. By the way, we all are sexually broken. And there is this guy in me, and I got to admit it, there's this little guy in me that wants to just stand up and say all this stuff, right? But there's this other part of me that says, the minute you do that, you're responsible to help people. And I know that. It's co- you know, discipleship is costly. When you read the Bible, guys, you look at the believers. One of the first things they did when they got saved is they, said it's, they sold all their property. Do you remember that? I love talking to people about tithing. I, don't want, I don't tithing. I don't think the Bible talks about tithing. You're right. The New Testament talks about giving everything you have. <laughs> so you want to get more uncomfortable, let's do it. I'm not trying to pressure you. I'm just, this is my, this is me. So it says they, you know why they gave all that they had? They sold their property and they laid it at the, at the apostles' feet? Because these people that were giving their lives to Christ were about to be ostracized from their community. And many of them probably needed a place to live. They probably were going to lose their jobs. This money wasn't so that they had more money to do things they wanted to, like some of these preachers today to have better lifestyles and to do that, to, to manipulate the people. It was so that the community would have places to go. They would have the ability to actually disciple people. It was costly. It was costly. I mean, this is what it was all about. You know, this is the early church. Let's go back to the early church. Before we say that, are we sure it will cost us our convenience if we want to go back to the early church? You're going to have to make a bigger table at your home. You're gonna to have to put the welcome mat back outside in, in front of your house again. I mean, we just we just gotta invite people back in again. If we want to take back society, if that's the phrase today, then let's invite people into our lives, to our tables, to our conversations, and stop just thinking that we can post something and say something, and that's what it is to be a good Christian. I just don't appreciate that anymore. When I was younger, I used to love that because I got that little guy inside of me. It's like, heck yeah, you know, usually he doesn't say that, but he, you know, (laughs) just being honest with you. Romans chapter 13 says that we submit to the governing authorities. I have a whole new interpretation on this now. I don't have time for it, but we submit to the governing authorities but you know, I was reading this week and I, I was telling the guys that, I was, that I'm discipling right now, I was saying, look at chapter 12. You know, in, 15, in the 1500s, that's when the chapter divisions in the Bible came into play. And so the, they were just a sea of text. It was just a letter before that. So a lot of times when you read a chapter, you, you really need to go backwards and see what he was saying. But in chapter 12, you know what he's saying? He says, don't take vengeance, leave room for the vengeance of God. Chapter 12, the end of the chapter. And the last verse of chapter 12 is, overcome evil with That's what it says. It says, overcome evil with good. And the next verse is, everyone should be subject to the governing authorities. Now it starts to change the way you see that verse. I know, I should have known. I'm a preacher. I spend 15 hours on a sermon each week, whether you think that that's worthy of what I communicate or not. But I didn't see it. And I thought there was a principle that people used to believe, and it was what Jesus taught. Pray for those that despitefully use you. You disagree with somebody, the question is, are you praying for them? Bless those that curse you. So in my, I've been a a pastor for 21 years, and I have hardly ever been asked to be for discipleship in this arena. I have usually only ever been asked where I stand on issues. I've learned that people want to know what I think because that is what helps them listen to me. I've said one statement and I've I've preached for three and a half years sometimes. You've heard, people have heard me for three and a half years, and then I make one statement and there's no grace. It's it's wild. It's wild. This is an arena that, that captures our heart. I told you what I think, let's get involved. Some of you guys, you're frustrated, turn that, run, in, run for office, we need you there, <laughs> amen. And overcome evil with good. There's a lot of evil legislation. There's a lot of evil policies. There's a lot of unregenerate people saying and doing things that are terrible right now. I totally agree with that. But I believe that God's still on the throne and we need to pray and we need to move in a way where we believe that God is at work today. Let's disciple people in the midst of this. We're not backing down, let's step up. But what does it mean to step up? This is, I'm presenting to you what I think. I care about domestic policy, economic issues, foreign policy, national security. I care about health care. I'm 42. I'm pretty healthy, but my parents are in their 70s. So I started to care more about health care. So of course I care about this in our political arena. I care about immigration. I'll be honest, I didn't care much about immigration until I had two friends that were going through it and we helped fund them. And I saw the process and I was like, wow, I really care. It's a mess in our country. Politicians promising that they're going to help us. I care about social issues, marriage. I'm pro-life. I think abortion is wrong. And I think we've been indoctrinating a generation to think that it's healthcare and it's not. How many people I've sat and talked to that have gone through it, they do not think that it's healthcare after the job is done, friends. Let me just tell you that. And I'm thankful for CareNet and Pregnancy Resource Centers that are not being acknowledged in our society today as those that are really helping people. What a shame that is. It's a shame. They are helping people. I'm thankful for religious liberty. And not just for me or for the Christian, but everyone. Even if I disagree with someone else's religion, I think that is the best way forward. And America is the greatest country to see that happen. I don't want to lose that. I feel that sentiment so many others do. But even if we did, which I don't want, we're still gonna do this together in Jesus' name. We're still gonna make disciples of all nations, baptizing people in the name of the Son, Father, and Holy Spirit. And we're gonna teach them everything Jesus taught us. So November 8th is Election Tuesday. I encourage you to vote. I'm not gonna ask you if you did. I've already voted. We're mail-in. I know that's controversial these days, but it seems to work. If you have not registered to vote and you're now starting to question that, you say, well, how do I do that? It's late to do it online, but you can go down to the Federal Way Performing Arts Center Monday and Tuesday from nine to five and you can show up there and you can register to vote and you can vote. If you need help on anything or if you're interested, I would be glad to send you material. Amen. Amen. I think we should. We don't always agree with policies or politicians, but 2 Timothy chapter 2 commands us to pray for all of our leaders. I prayed for President Trump. I pray for Joe Biden. I don't snicker at either of them when I do, and I suggest that you don't either. That's just where I'm at. The Bible tells us otherwise. It tells us to pray. God moves as we pray. Ultimately, as we engage, we trust God entirely. We know he's at work. And listen to this as I close. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he pleases. Aren't you thankful for our sovereign king and ruler, Jesus Christ, no matter what? Is that right? You can clap for him. Come on now. Will you stand? Thank you, Lord. Pray with me. And I think it's appropriate that we just simply pray over first our hearts, and then we pray over our land. Would you join me in that today? Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus. We give our hearts fresh to you today, full surrender, complete loyalty. We recognize that we are responsible to many things in this world, but we are loyal to one. You have our full allegiance. We submit to you. We yield to you, King Jesus. Come in our midst today and encourage us. Strengthen us, Lord. Father, I pray that you would give us a biblical worldview. Give us conviction, maybe where we don't have it, maybe where we're just listening to voices, but we're not listening to the word of God. Help us, Lord, to know your heart in the midst of all this where it can be quite confusing with so many things being said. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what your word says. It gives us what we need. Help us to be responsible and engage appropriately so that others would be blessed, that we could serve the other in all that we say and all that we do. We pray over Federal Way. We pray over our cities. We pray over our region. We pray over our state and our country. Father, we ask you that there would be a sweeping revival in the name of Jesus. That it would not just be political, but it would be spiritual from the top to the bottom. We thank you that you hold every politician accountable to your word. That there is no separation. At the end of it all, Lord, we all stand before you, the righteous king. And God, we pray in these days that we would see bright and burning lamps rise up, voices that would speak prophetically like John the Baptist. They would say what you're saying, Lord, not ashamed. And whether it makes people tense or uncomfortable or not, we just pray that, Lord, what we say and do would be solely to please you. Keep us clean, keep us clear about that. Bring revival to our land, bring revival to us. Thank you, Lord, that you're in charge. We trust you, we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Northwest Church, go to our website, nwcfoursquare.org, or download our app in any of the app stores by searching Northwest Foursquare Church.